This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen. And I'm Darren Franich. Wow, Jeff, has it really been 25 years since we last recorded an episode of this podcast? It has. We've, we, it's been 25 years, <laughs> and, uh, but we've come back in time 24 years <laughs> to record it, though. <laughs> All the better to assure that we enter the right lodge, or maybe enter the wrong lodge, or maybe go to the pocket universe, or maybe the pocket universe is the lodge. Who's to say, really? Um, Not us. <laughs> Not us. Uh, Jeff, we are revisiting... Twin Peaks The Return, uh, the 18-part series, which we covered in depth uh, last year. If this is your first episode of this podcast, welcome and highly recommend, if you're interested, checking out the 100 other episodes that we recorded last year. Um, (laughs) But uh, we're here. It's approaching one year after the end of Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. The Return. A lot of stuff has happened in the interim uh, in the world of Twin Peaks and in the world period. Um, (laughs) We had sort of talked about revisiting the show for a while, actually. Yeah. In fact, I think we sort of started the conversation somewhere in our text messages <laughs> that were just always about Twin Peaks. That's right. One of us brought up the possibility of doing just, you know, why don't we just do this in front of a microphone? We, we were talking about that many, many months ago right. and then decided to rewatch the series in its entirety. I think we started talking about the idea of doing it when Mark Frost released his book that essentially served as some kind of epilogue and an effect quasi-official canon way to the show. And I remember that conversation being a lot of fun, but also I felt like I didn't do it justice enough because I felt like, wow, in just the month or two since we finished watching Twin Peaks, I had forgotten so much of what happened during the course of the show. And so many of my thoughts were defined by the very end of the show that I just kind of felt like it was actually hard to evaluate the book. I don't think we're going to talk about the book today, but I would like to say right off the top, I think I like the book better than I did last fall when I immediately read it and kind of all I wanted from it was, hey, can you explain the end? Um, But all to say that I remember in that conversation, it seemed like, hey, if we're going to talk about the book, maybe we should be familiar with the show. And, And it's amazing, and I experienced this anew, and we'll get into this, just how absolutely dense and rich this show is and how by the end of it, how much you've forgotten or lost grasp of everything that came before. But yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. And then and then I had an unexpected summer vacation, which I know you did not, and I'm sorry. Um, and I, so I had nothing to do for a while. So TV I, takes no vacation, <laughs> Jeff. I, I guess so. You didn't, you didn't tell me this when you handed me this, 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 this whole critic job. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's funny how the job has changed so much then. It's like you thought you could take June and July off and then just start watching pilots in August. No, nope. TV all the time. <laughs> You're either watching what's on now, playing catch up, or you know trying to watch what is going to be on soon, which for me, that was a big shift for 
for me, last year, Twin Peaks was kind of my primary TV event right. of each week. And it was really interesting. I, I might talk about this a little later. But getting to revisit this show while literally drowning in television, yes. which is, I think, true of a lot of people. It certainly is true of, uh, you know, the, the TV critics among us. Um, the disparity really helped me appreciate aspects of the show that I think in the relative vacuum of last season, uh, I, I had not been. Um, but Jeff, we, we have a lot to get through yes. today. Um, we wanted to say right off the top, uh, we are recording this in the wake of a, I don't want to call it a, a catastrophe, um, but uh, the Emmy nominations were announced uh, a few weeks ago. Twin Peaks was not nominated for the big limited series or movie prize. Genius Colin Picasso was, oh, uh, which well. I consider to be something of a slap in the face. Um, wow. You know, the show received an interesting assortment of technical nominations, which I am really stumping for, and I think it's great mm. to see. Certainly one thing that came to the forefront on the rewatch was just how like technically well put together yeah. this show is. Uh, you know, David Lynch's nomination for his sound work is extremely richly deserved, and hopefully there's a win there. Um, but McLaughlin did not get a nomination, uh, which certainly was kind of a bummer. Uh, what were your reactions to the Emmy nominations, Jeff? Well, I was really disappointed. And I was disappointed because I thought that Twin Peaks would get robbed and quote unquote snubbed, although I I actually technically don't believe in the whole idea of snubbing. But let's just speak glibly. Um, I was dreading the show would get snubbed and it did. But in all the categories that I wasn't expecting it to get snubbed, like I thought that the worst possible scenario for the show was that it would only get nominated for Kyle McLaughlin's performance, that it would ignore all the other performances and it would ignore David Lynch in directing categories or, or, or writing categories. Um, there were signs that that was the likely outcome. I mean, I believe that David Lynch did not get any DGA nominations for his Twin Peaks work, that the show didn't get any WGA nominations for, for any of the writing. And I think it got a Golden Globe nomination for Kyle MacLachlan. And, and then I thought, well, it's, I guess it's competing in the limited series category. And I recognized intuitively that that was going to be a competitive category. I thought that maybe strangely enough, it had a better chance in just straight up drama. That's interesting. But this is all to say that it, it actually got like, what, eight or nine nominations, but nothing in the categories that I thought it would. Not Best Show, not Kyle. Uh, for for lead actor, nothing for Laura Dern. I really thought that just general love for Laura Dern. I mean, you know, she is so great in this show, and she's been great in ten other things this year. Yes, but I, I sort of thought just Hollywood's love of her would carry her into like some category there, and then they, they were certainly kind of pitching it that way. So yeah, that was also an, an interesting thing that did not wind up happening. <laughs> yeah, and in fairness to all the other nominees, I don't think I watched them. So, like, I did not watch the recent series of American Crime Story, but I my, my understanding is that it's incredibly compelling and among Ryan Murphy's better works. And it's going to win, yeah. It seems to be the, the front runner in, in a lot of the categories. But, you know, this Picasso show, like, look, I didn't watch that one either, but my gut just tells me that Twin Peaks Return is a superior work. I'm just, I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm gonna be reckless and irresponsible um, as a critic, but I'm just gonna make that assumption. Yeah. You don't want to judge a, a book by its cover. I will say one interesting thing is, you know, as much as like there's the gamesmanship in you that I was sort of looking towards this incredible showdown between Ryan Murphy and American Crime Story on one side and Lynch on the other side. Um, 
there is that kind of hipper than thou response to it where I'm like, well, it got all these nominations. I'm happy about that, but it didn't get the big one. That means it's still cool to like it. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I like, you know, yeah. I try not to go there in my head too often, but like my head did go there after the nominations as, as I was trying to find some reason to sort of feel happy. That yeah. <laughs> as the dust settled on my disappointment, it was like, I, I'm still really bummed that someone else is going to win an acting award on Emmy night other than Kyle MacLachlan and oh, yeah. whatever category he could possibly be in, because that was just, I think, a, a really great achievement. That said, when you realize the stuff that it did get nominated for, there is a way in which it could, might just quietly dominate the Emmys. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, if Lynch doesn't get the directing award. I mean, I just think that that's a moment that we all want to see among people who love film and television is for him to get that award. So it'd be a shocker if he, if it doesn't. And I can't imagine another show winning all those technical prizes, but it seems like part eight, like, like if, if it doesn't win some or all of the the prizes for which it was nominated for, it's, I would be yeah. shocked. In hindsight, I, I was wondering, like, was there some extra category juking they could have done where they could have entered part eight as a TV movie? The way that, like, every episode of Black Mirror now is sort of entered as a TV film. Like, part eight versus USS Callister would have been another great showdown. Yeah, oh, but... true. That's true. <laughs> that would have required a lot of creative categorizing on the part of Showtime. The one so... thing I'm confused about in the nominations is I believe that where almost every other nominee in the directing category in which Lynch is occupies, they're nominated for like a specific hour of television. But I think that Lynch is nominated for like the whole body of work that is this miniseries mm-hmm. or limited series. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that helps or hurts him among voters. I, I have to say it, it does sort of, you know, it conjures up the age old question of, is this 18 pieces? Is it all one piece? Uh, something that I sort of thought a lot about, you know, watching it in, in fits and starts if, over the summer. If you're awarding him for the whole body of work, I could see people who watched it and who didn't watch it go, well, like 18 hours of amazing, <laughs> like if bizarre television, I didn't understand, give him the Emmy. <laughs> But I can also see people saying, I, I didn't watch the whole thing. But that one hour of American Crime Story that Ryan Murphy directed was spectacular. Like, how could any hour of Twin Peaks be better than that? So I could see it helping him and hurting him. Yeah. Those voters, like, really hold part 10 against Lynch. They're just like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just sort of felt like some of the angles in that scene where Richard was going crazy. I just, yeah. I, I didn't like it too much. And that sweeping scene. What the <laughs> hell was that? I love it even more now. Uh, Jeff, we're going to kind of walk through our rewatch here. We've been talking a lot about what it was like. How long did this rewatch take you? It sort of, I kind of started in early June and basically ended, like, just this week. So it was sort of like fits and starts of one or two episodes at a time. I gather you were kind of watching it a little bit faster, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, but I experienced it in, in some ways as an analogous but different version of how I originally experienced it, which is like I, I watched it in fits and bits in the first half and then somewhere around halfway through, I'm gulping it down, you know, <laughs> which is, I think, how I experienced a little bit of the pace of the show, which is it's just very mysterious and slow at first. But then a shape kind of starts to emerge. And then you think that things are like not like building quickly, but building with sort of that this momentum and dread 
And then you get to the end and you're left going, okay, what happened again? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was expecting clarity and now I'm just more confused than ever. What, uh, what was more pleasurable? Uh, what sort of worked better for you on this rewatch? Was there anything where you were like, you know, actively dreading it going in and you got to it and it was just much better or, you know, things that sort of really popped for you? There are ways in which the rewatch was so much better than actually watching it the first time around with some pretty profound exceptions, which I'll talk about in a second, but just like, look to watch it, knowing actually where it's headed. It neutralizes that part of your brain. That is like, at least a part of my brain that is like constantly trying to figure it out and wondering what's going on. And so there was a way in which I can just enjoy it more for what it is and to not overthink or overread scenes or passages or storylines or characters, which I know aren't going to pay off the way I thought or don't necessarily mean something to the big mystery. Uh, I was more relaxed with it. Um, similarly, it was more fun to watch it actually knowing kind of where we were going because then you could see ways in which it was foreshadowing the end or some or for elements in which it, it sort of helped maybe illuminate some things that you're going to experience at the end. It was really enjoyable that way. I was expecting an experience that was going to be a little bit of homework and it wasn't. I was surprised by that. Like that. I was like, okay, like I love the show. I love David Lynch, but it's 18 hours of this. So it's going to be a little work. Right. And I just found it, it went down really easily and really fast in a way that I wasn't, that it was very pleasurable. What you were talking about with the kind of being relaxed with it, I found it really interesting. A lot of things from the first half of the season just popped so much more for me on this rewatch. I think exactly for the reason you're describing. And it's partially knowing where things are going. It's partially not being as worried that like, yes. to, to me, it's kind of like the yes. Vegas problem where I'm sure if you listen to us each week, we're kind of saying, are we still in Vegas? Are we leaving Vegas? Is this a thing we are, you know, you're just not sure how you're being situated. Now, the Vegas stuff is kind of some of my favorite stuff in right. the show. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, the awareness that it is the show to a certain extent, or at least it certainly is, like, as impactful as anything else happening. Mixed with, it's so interesting knowing where individual characters are going to kind of return and see how often, like, the way they're introduced is almost kind of setting up these very purposeful anti-climaxes. Yes. Um, the first introduction of Richard, Richard in general is a character who really popped for me on this rewatch. And the first time we meet him, you know, he's smoking a cigarette right in front of the no smoking sign, which I now interpret as David Lynch's giant FU to everyone who does not let him smoke <laughs> indoors here in California. But just everything about that scene, the first minute of it just feels very iconic and you kind of think you're watching a young James Dean type of person and immediately that turns sour when there's that awful interaction between him and the young lady and he just whispers the worst things in her ear and in that scene you're just, you go from this like is this the new Bobby to oh is this the new Bob like you know you kind of barely even know who this guy is and you're already against him and yet the knowledge that he's just kind of awful and that he's on this journey that is ultimately you know literally going to end with him just like burning up and like his father figure barely even cares about 
about him. Yeah. Just everything about that, that to me was a very specific example of knowing where it's going and knowing that there's a big left turn from the introduction. Same in a way with James, the first time you see James, you know, singing his song and he's singing to Vanessa from Gossip Girl and you think like, oh, is this like a beautiful romance that we're witnessing the beginning of? No. No. Right. <laughs> it's not. Somehow, I, I appreciate that. It doesn't feel random to me. It feels very purposeful and very much a key aspect of this show that you're setting these things up and they are constantly taking left turns That's from, right. from what yeah. you'd expect. Similarly, a character like Red played by, you know, Lynch favorite Balthasar Getty, you kind of think like, oh, this whole like drug dealing storyline in Twin Peaks, the, the plague of sparkle that is like uh, afflicting and affecting all the young people. And, you know, Red's going to be a big bad in this show. And we're going to, you know, th- this is going to be a problem to solve. No, <laughs> no. Like, you know, Red at a, some, a certain point, and I, and I have a Red theory later that we'll talk about. Oh my God, but, okay. But it was amazing how, yeah, I mean, like, that goes nowhere. And so, for example, when I countered that scene and his introduction, his, his memorable introduction into the show in which he has that encounter with Richard and he flips the dime and it, like, hovers in the air and all of that, I remember at that time going, like, this is so weird. Like, what is happening? Is he like a Red Lodge demon, like, or whatever? And then you watch it again, you kind of know, hey, no, this is going nowhere. This is just kind of weird. But the, the air kind of comes out of that a little bit. Um, and then you you just have to deal with it more as it is for what it is. And I like that part of it. So, like, you know, Red wasn't as mysterious and cool to me this time around, but the overall effect of watching the show was taking it more on its own terms. And my other point to this is the other major quality of my rewatch was that the the filter of my nostalgia for the original Twin Peaks was pretty much gone. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our rewatch, a lot of our conversations was like, we were definitely committed to the idea of like, like we, we want to accept it for what it is, but, but when is Audrey coming back? You know, <laughs> when is Cooper going to come back and save the day? When are we going to get the new version of the hits or the sequel to the hits? And Miss Twin Peaks 2018. <laughs> right, yeah. Like I acknowledge that my nostalgia for the original show and my expectations of what it would look like to pay off on that nostalgia and all the unanswered questions was a major factor in how I was experiencing and reading the show. And that really wasn't a factor this time around. And so I was able to accept it a little bit on its own terms, I think. Yeah. And even, you know, it's funny what you were saying about Red. I mean, the left turn that he takes, it's kind of, again, once you start to notice it, it happens to a lot of characters. They're introduced in such a vivid way. And you walk away thinking, okay, like, this is who they are in the cosmology of, of this season. The last time we see him, him and Shelley are sneaking around and, like, making out, like, teenagers. <laughs> and it's, you know, how do you go from being, like, a, Walter White Heisenberg character to like Archie sneaking kisses with Betty like and I think it's a little bit of in that scene where Red's introduced he talks about how like he's kind of new in town he's, he's kind of learning to like Twin Peaks who does that remind you of well exactly it, it, it's almost kind of the story of the show in a way is Dale Cooper coming yes. for one thing and then and then just staying because he likes it here and it reminds you of certain investigators go to Buckhorn and seem to just stay there and set up shop there <laughs> yeah. and they and they like it there and one of them is having a little romance there. And it it gives you the appreciation of 
is to some extent the narrative through line of this season is you come here for one reason and maybe it's just for a reason and you want to leave and then you decide I want to stay for a while and that's that's an interesting thing to just see dramatized over and over again and even you know the idea of I'm in Las Vegas I have to leave but I really don't want to leave and you know should I even leave is something that I think is is certainly a key question sort of facing Dale Cooper towards the end of the season so it's funny even read a character who I think appears twice or maybe three three times three times he appears in the first roadhouse scene he has that big intro with richard and then we see him make out with shelly and that's it like i think you're right even in that journey it's just so interesting to see that story kind of being told the whole thing with red that uh, this actually just hit me this morning and i know we will talk about this a little bit later in our podcast but how red is one more character that seems to be some sort of weird cracked mirror reflection of Cooper. He's he's new to town. He's there for a very specific job. He ends up falling in love with the town and wants to stay. He ends up falling in love with a local that might be changing his interior weather. He develops a protege in the form of a horn child. <laughs> so like is Richard is to red what Audrey was to Cooper? Oh, you know, like um and yeah, so Yeah, just the appreciation for how well put together it all is really came through. Um what didn't work as well on the rewatch? Was there stuff that for you just second time around less interested in? Was there stuff that you were excited about that kind of hit you less well? You know, uh, was it as simple as just like some things that had kind of lost their luster on the second go round. You know, it's weird because um, I my example for that was actually Red. But now that we're talking about him and we're kind of like seeing his, his potential, a way to look at him. Now I'm salvaging him. But yeah, like the whole drug storyline was. I, I I remember texting you because we did our rewatch separately. But was like, oh, this dime flicking scene just isn't really as cool as it used to be. You know. <laughs> Um, no, you know, I was more struck by the things that worked better for me as opposed to what didn't work as well. For example, all things Dougie worked so much better for me now that I was liberated from when is he going to turn into Cooper? When is he going to turn into Cooper? When is he going to activate and enlighten and kind of like getting rid of that expectation or want or desire and just kind of following him through his weird journey through Vegas, I think it helped me kind of see Cooper in a, in a different way and how he might be linking up to other things. But all things Buckhorn also in tenor, entertainment. You know what? I might have been less impressed with Richard Horn this time around. Oh, wow. That's funny. He popped for you. Radical disagreement. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think it's <laughs> radical because I'm not saying that I find him, that I, I, I didn't like him, but I would say that I was just so struck by this charismatic expression of evil and misguidedness and misogyny. And, and maybe it's because this might be an aspect of a quality that you just described and liked and which I like too, sort of the purposeful anti-climaxes of so many things. And I think that there is something meaningful about this character of Richard going on this arc, this guy who is so just sort of starved for significance and importance and pursuing it in the, all the most gross wrong ways. 
And then he just meets the most tossed off, like, nope, ending. You know, he just gets <laughs> duped by his his dad and 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 gets fried. And and so, so he Goodbye, my son. <laughs> goodbye, my son. Like Richard ends in a kind of anticlimax that is really meaningful because I know that anticlimax is coming. He comes off even more tragic, but also less consequential. For me, like, uh, part 10 was the one that on the first watch I probably liked the least. Uh, you know, I, I think we had sort of nicknamed it the uh, being crappy to women episode because that's when Richard is just running around yeah. town, you know, beating up Miriam, uh, attacking his grandmother. That is also the episode where Stephen is sort of attacking his wife. And, you know, there's just, there's a general feeling of just general ill will. And I think especially last season coming off of part eight still, and that just felt like a real punch to the gut, quite literally. Um, just on this go around, something about that part and the way that it kind of juxtaposed all the bad stuff Richard was doing yeah. with, you know, Dougie and Janie E have a incredibly rapturous night together, which seems in its own sort of comical way to be incredibly loving. Something about that and the nature of Richard as just this figure who is just so unstylishly bad. Right. And so, you know, he ultimately in that part is going on the run and leaving Twin Peaks behind. And you sort of think that, you know, oh, he must see it as like, all right, like time to begin my big journey to the outside world. And it's just, you're you're leaving the one place where anyone even remotely cares about you and you're going to wind up meeting the person who ultimately cares the least about you. Yeah. And so something in that, you would never call it tragic, but it is certainly the journey he's on. It, it struck me and that part is so much about that journey. I would say that there was an aspect to the show, and that's always been an aspect of Lynch's work, but let's just speak to Twin Peaks The Return, that felt a little bit more complicated and I was a little bit more self-conscious of this time around, which is the depiction of women and the portrayal of women and the debate about his work, about whether or not they are complicated, strong characters who are fighting up against and being victimized by a patriarchal, misogynistic society, or whether they're actually really superficial representations of that idea, if not just bad characters, and that the show isn't doesn't treat and depict its women well. And I felt like I was more I was more attuned to that and more aware of that and more struggling with that. I, I don't feel like I have a lot of answers resolution to that. I just felt that tension a whole lot more because I was watching it through Me Too lenses, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, like, the show ended right as the whole Me Too moment exploded and that we're rightly dealing with all of these issues. And in fact, maybe the best thing I could say is, is that it seems like you could say that Twin Peaks The Return is a hinge or maybe a capper to this overlong anti-hero, male anti-hero era. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe even the hinge and the pivot to a response to that era. I mean, and what better way to launch it than like Laura Palmer screaming, issuing that wail to end Twin Peaks The Return and bringing down the whole evil house of cards that is whatever the evil is in this world that's all wrapped up in her own possessed father. So uh, there was a little bit more queese throughout and uh, queese that uh, numerous game actresses are, I think, are very conspicuously playing to and fighting with, you yeah, know, uh, from Laura Dern to even to Sherilyn Fenn, whose performance is Audrey, 
really, I think I was more impressed by it on the rewatch than I did when I watched it the first time and was like fighting through my own feelings about what I wanted from an Audrey story. Yeah. I mean the Audrey stuff now that is like the Talmud that is like, I, I watch those scenes over and over again. And each time I seem to understand more and understand less. I, I guess for me on the rewatch, thinking about things that worked less well, there's a point around the middle of the season where just every time we cut to Buckhorn, I can feel myself losing interest. Yeah, and, yeah. and the irony is Why? what that ultimately, I think it's, a little bit because like they achieve stasis they yes. are in a hotel like you know we're, we're, we're sort of in almost a kind of Boonwell like c- consistent dream where you're never quite sure what time it is you know this is the point of the season where Laura Dern is constantly at the bar and sometimes she's wearing the same clothes she was wearing at a different time and you, you kind of feel this stasis that creates some incredible moments I love, whether it's Albert on a date with a local medical examiner, you know, it ultimately builds to, I think, just one of my single favorite settings in the show, which is the kind of mobile command center yes. they set up. Uh-huh. And it really, for me, it's all worth it for that scene where you see Gordon Cole just kind of among the machines, and he seems locked into the heartbeat monitor in Vegas yes. for Dale Cooper. And I love all of that, but certainly the Buckhorn stuff is the stuff in the middle where I just feel myself less interested in that than I am at a time when Vegas is fascinating and everything happening in Twin Peaks is fascinating. When we were watching the show, the original, you know, the first time around, we're expecting at some point that this Buckhorn story is they're going to make some connections and then mobilize and all of a sudden they're going to Vegas and then they're all going to Twin Peaks. We all kind of knew it would ultimately end up in Twin Peaks, in a way. Well, we also always knew they'd go to Odessa, Texas at some point. That's true. Of course. <laughs> like, it we had all, to happen. Inevitable. But I do get what you mean by kind of like your interest level kind of flags a little. It is another example of perhaps a meaningful and intentional anticlimax. And I remember in our texting, we were actually wondering if that was part of the point, if there was some sort of like meaning in this of characters. You know, it's it's just a great example of, um, you mentioned one of the things that kind of stuck with me in our rewatch, you texted me, is this idea of really comparing it to the Odyssey and one hero's long journey home. And during that journey home, um, he's constantly kind of going on these little side trips and being tempted to just sort of like get sidetracked and stay on an island of sirens, for example. That's what Buckhorn kind of reminded me of is like it was what if like Ulysses just like got waylaid on an island and then stayed <laughs> and then massive circumstances had to arise to blow him out of there. I mean, that's kind of what it kind of feels like. And a theory that emerged in that, which I pitched you, is that when you realize that they are there because of stuff that Mr. C has done in this town, murders that he's committed, mysteries that he's set in motion, it's almost like Buckhorn is like this honey honey trap of mystery for the Blue Rose team. And my theory was that whether or not that was the entire point of it, which was, you know, Mr. C thinking at some point I'm going to set in motion things that are that are going to get, from my point of view, the bad guys, the FBI on my tail. So I'm just going to create this sort of like honey trap to literally get them stuck there so that it would just free me up to do what 
I want to do. You sort of texted the phrase honey trap of mystery to me. And to a certain extent, I'm like, well, that's Twin Peaks. But like that is that is certainly I, I love the notion of because initially, if you're following the FBI thread and, you know, the, the Gordon Cole Blue Rose Task Force as this sort of key traveling figures in this world, they're all over the place. They are on the modern day version of Ulysses's boat, which is Gordon Cole's wood paneled, well stocked with liquor plane. And they're, you know, they're jumping from here to there. And like, even initially, they are the forces who are stitching this together into a coherent story. And yeah. they you know, we talked about this last year, the point at which they are suddenly going to these places and you're connecting together Mr. C with Buckhorn and then they just stop. And it is, I love that idea of they stop with a purpose. They seem to like it there. Gordon Cole finds his French lady. It's funny, and it sort of goes back to this this sensation of, you know, everything kind of being a reflection of Cooper's journey. Yes. Which we'll get to uh, in a minute. Um, let's talk about things you noticed. Uh-huh. Didn't notice that the first time around. Things that maybe were impossible to notice the first time around, unless you exist in a fourth dimensional state. Someone uh, had, had recently been tweeting at us about something that I didn't even notice this time, but you were definitely really big on, which is uh, when Sarah Palmer goes to the store to pick up more of her Bloody Mary material and has the freak out at the checkout stand. Uh, that store is called Carrie's Handy Mart. Yes. Uh, K-E-R-I nevertheless sounds an awful lot like Carrie Page. I'm still kind of reeling from that revelation. Uh, well, what did you kind of make of that? Yeah, I mean, here are some things that jumped out at me that strike me as significant details, but I'm not going to like put it together in a theory. I just, I liked noticing these things and I guess when I rewatch it for a third time, I'll have this knowledge in my head and then like see how it intersects with rewatching again. But the whole Sarah Palmer arc is really fascinating to a degree in which I'm not completely sure I'm even confident I have any good conclusions about. But like she's introduced to us early on, but it really starts to kick in around the halfway point and It's interesting that her most memorable scenes often occur in episodes where we get the Audrey story too. And you kind of get the sense that these two very troubled women, what their stories represent, have a lot of meaning to the nature of reality of in Twin Peaks and what's at play. Specifically now the possibility that what we're watching at some point in the season is time rewriting itself you know that was another thing that i was watching for this time around in the rewatch knowing that we're building to this idea that cooper is going to go back in time and save laura do we start seeing evidence of a time shift or a new timeline happen in the course of this season and i remember there was that one episode that ends in an unusual fashion in which we see the the scene of um they're at the the double r right? the double r at night and you switch to these different shots and you realize as you switch between shots that the people are switching positions and their seating positions. The theory that immediately jumped out to a lot of people on the internet was there's some kind of like time travel involved. Reality is rebooting. And I remember we discussed that theory in the show and went, no, <laughs> no, I can't, no, that doesn't, that, that's just, that you're, you're just projecting stuff. And now it's probably true. Like, oh, and, 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 and watching the Sarah Palmer stuff, and watching how every scene is foreshadowing the end and her torment at possibly being possessed or taken over by some demon, um, Judy or, or whoever we're going to call it. But yeah, 
one of her huge memorable scenes is going to a convenience store, a sort of mythic idea in the Black Lodge mythology called Carrie's Handy Mart. And that should interact with the whole Carrie page of it all. That was one detail that jumped out at me. And speaking of Carrie, um, I think that you pointed this out this morning, which is that the character played by Ashley Judd, her name, last name is Page. Beverly Page. Beverly Page. <laughs> it's comical because when you realize that, you're like, oh, I guess because I had sort of really enjoyed everything to do with kind of Ashley Judd's role in the show and her kind of dynamic with Ben Horn felt to me like something that was kind of beautiful and very much of itself, you know, in a way. Like, uh, you know, there's times when I kind of approach this whole season as being a series of different stories and some of them are shorter than others. And that felt to me like this interesting short story that was, you know, partially about Ben and partially about her and the fact that we kind of went home and saw her husband stuck out to me as something interesting, but I didn't really have a handle on it. Um, Her last name is Paige. Carrie Paige's last name is Paige. Don't know what to make of that. Your mind kind of runs to... Carrie Page as Laura Palmer and her relationship to Ben Horn. Ben Horn is one of the many men she slept with. Ben Horn in the original series also said he was in love with her at one point, which, you know, do we just kind of conjure that up as Beverly Page is the most recent example of someone that Ben has become infatuated with? And is it a good thing that he seems to not act on it as opposed to in the old days? Is there much more there? Is this another kind of Diane, Janie situation where it's just sisters who should clearly interact more? I just, I... I found that to be a huge moment of credit name reading mind bogglingness, yeah. which I still have no real handle on. <laughs> like, so here's an attempt to handle it, but it's kind of superficial, which is, I mean, I know it's just so cliche now to kind of describe Lynch's storytelling style as like the dream quality to it. I'm holding uh, his memoir in my hand, which is called Room to Dream. So I think it's, I think you're allowed to say it's not a cliche. Okay, it's good. Just accurate. <laughs> but I know that a lot of, theories that are out there right now, including one that I know that Twin Peaks Nation is has had their mind captured by, and it's been like maybe one of the big leading theories out there, a theory that you can find written at a website called politics-letters.org, written by a guy named Tim Kreider, or Kreider, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, K-R-E-I-D-E-R, called But What Is the Dreamer? colon Twin Peaks The Return. And it's an example of these kind of leading theories out there that basically accept all of the show as a dream. But whose dream? And why are they dreaming it? And this theory, which is quite controversial, and I don't know if we'll have time to debate it in full, is, is that Twin Peaks The Return and even Twin Peaks the entire series is the dream of a Dale Cooper that we don't really get to know directly, but is represented in all of the characters and, and certainly the multiple Coopers that are at play in the, in the return. And the big idea is that he is the true murderer of Laura Palmer and that all of Twin Peaks is this attempt to both alternately run away from that reality and then try to confront it. And all of the, the stories is doomed attempt to understand that. This is all to say that details like this, the repetition of names, the repetition of motifs in different bodies, the 
Carrie showing up. I mean, that seems like very classic dream logic storytelling, right? And so it just contributes to this sense of a narrative that could certainly be all a dream, but whose dream and why are they dreaming in? That theory, which you're bringing up, is super interesting, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. Full props to the author, because the sheer imagination that went into it is something that I find kind of awesome and wonderful. Definitely disagree with a lot of aspects of the theory, in part because it does seem like a very valuable effort to find the one key which will unlock everything. And just the way that I experience the show, I think it's more like you're in a room with a lot of doors, and it's sort of an M.C. Escher type of thing where some doors lead you back here and some doors lead you outside and I worry about anything that is built on the idea of Lynch is very fascinated with dreams. Therefore, we should read this as essentially being set in a world where there is a binary version of what is real and what is not real. I kind of think when Lynch has characters say things like, you know, reality itself is a dream, he's not saying reality isn't real. He's kind of saying you need to radically expand your definition of reality. And so I worry about any theory which forces you to say, well, these characters, you know, they only matter to the extent that it's all inside of this one person's head. That being said, it's interesting how that theory captures the thing that is really at the core of all of Twin Peaks, and you feel it very strongly in in the series. Just this sense of, like, melancholy and darkness and sadness and how, you know, even the joy when it's there sort of runs right up against just wave crashing against something really awful. And I I find that to be, that's kind of the most compelling aspect of the theory, I, I think, is, you know, its own interpretation of the sort of deep sadness at the core of a lot of Twin Peaks. But it leaves no room for the joy at the core of Twin Peaks, which is also, I think, another issue yeah. that I have with the theory yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good expression of the idea that, like, that's at the core of the show, which is, like, how the past is being inescapable and haunts us and claims us still and show full of regret and grief and the danger that comes with not kind of accurately processing that guilt too, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But um, other little details that jumped out at me that affect the way I read things or will be thinking about things moving forward as I continue the never ending work of theorizing about the show. Um, Something that really excited me when I texted you and one of the most memorable scenes in the show, the sex scene in part 18 in which Diane and Cooper are having sex in the motel room that has now kind of widely been interpreted, I think, rightly as a kind of like weird kind of sex magic that is meant to transport Cooper from one alt reality to another or certainly from one place to another and one of the things that amazing heartbreaking disturbing queasy scene when we first watched it we were just I felt like it was completely dominated by the experience of Diane in this moment here is this woman who's been traumatized by her old boss um, who was raped by his like dark doppelganger, Mr. C. And now one more time, she finds herself in a situation where she has to have sex with this guy, perhaps not really out of choice, certainly not for any of the reasons one would want to have sex with another human being. Um, and that there was this feeling of another kind of violation occurring. And it's set against that platter song, My Prayer, and all of that. He's looking up at her with those dead Mr. C eyes, and then she covers his face. And 
what I just interpreted that in that moment is, is this the experience of this person who just can't bear to look at this guy in the eyes. It's just too hard. It's too heartbreaking. And I think all of that remains totally true. But as I'm really kind of honoring that idea, my first watch, I really wasn't paying attention to what she's doing to Cooper's face, which is that she's not just kind of covering up his face, but she's massaging his face, rubbing his face. And as she's doing that, he's closing his eyes. And the connection I didn't make is we've seen this gesture before in the show. We've seen Mr. C do it to an associate earlier in the season when he starts rubbing that guy's, you know, jowls and his cheeks and kills him. And that the woodsmen kind of grab people's heads and kill them. And what it hit me is, is that we're not just dealing with a black right sex magic ritual designed to transport Cooper somewhere. Like, are we watching Diane kill Agent Cooper here? Is this the only way he gets to where he's trying to get to? That's right. Is, That's right. You know, this that is a you know a simplification of whatever I'm, I'm getting at. But yeah, like I that is a fascinating sort of thing to be pondering, given that he he wakes up in another place as another person. Right. <laughs> she's she's murdering him. She's killing him. He's it's a sacrificial death designed to transport our hero into an afterlife. But it kind of then changes how I kind of read this whole next section of the show, which is that there's no probably return turn now for Cooper or Laura. This is a kind of like afterlife bardo that once it's dispelled or destroyed this last hideout of this evil entity, perhaps Judy, or whether it's the rebooted world of Twin Peaks, I don't know, through time travel, it's very possible that these characters are gone for good. They're annihilated because they're dead, you know? So that's one thing that I'm thinking about, yeah. you know, which like, and, and it feeds into then actually kind of like bolsters all of the, the text and subtext of this woman forced into one more unwanted, undesired sexual encounter with a man that she loved and raped her. Because if she's now killing this man, is this a weird form of vengeance for her too, you know? I mean, you, you could read it so many ways. It's funny. Um, that scene for me was really on my mind throughout the rewatch. There were different things that it really echoed off of. Uh, one thing that fascinates me, and I think that you know Mark Frost and his storytelling is fascinated with this and Lynch is fascinated with this, is like these interesting echoes and how they almost occur not quite mathematically, but in a way that is seems almost tied into numerology at times. Um, the fact that in part one, there is an incident of what we might call sex magic to the extent that we see those two kids in New York, they are having sex yes. in, a, in, in, a, in a similar position, we'll just say, as Diane and uh, Cooper in part 18. And what that conjures up, you know, that incident of sex magic inadvertent, that then sort of signals the arrival of Judy. And it's interesting to compare that in the very first part yes, of this yes. to what happens at the very end, which is its own sort of attempt in a way to conjure up Judy or go to Judy's land or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Can I riff on that real quick? Yeah, yeah of real course. Quick? And then the other sex scene that we saw in which Janie E. and Dougie are having sex and it's played for comedy and he's flapping his arms <laughs> and I just, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but literally he's like flying away. Is that gesture meant to signal what the function of sex is for him in this story, which is to 
fly away to escape into another place. Interesting to consider that. Then you sort of factor in the recurrence of my prayer. And, you know, when did we first hear that? It was at the absolute geographic midpoint of this saga, uh, you know, in the midst of part eight. And that kind of announced the arrival of these figures who are certainly tied in with Judy. And what they did was certainly fatal. I mean, like, if you're watching the sex scene in part 18 with that kind of in mind, then that song essentially conjures up visions of minds being exploded open, which in turn conjures up what happened to the kids in part one. So it's interesting how my appreciation for these breadcrumbs that are laid, we're kind of used to storytelling that does that now in television. And it's fascinating to go back and see these things that kind of worked in their own strange way and appreciate them as setting up this sort of final act in such a fascinating way, which kind of leads into something else that uh, we should talk about, Jeff. Elements of foreshadowing. Yeah. Stuff that like really jumped to the forefront for you. You know, we're already kind of like talking about it a little bit with, uh, you know, what Cooper is after in part 18. But were there other things that watching parts one through 17 just seemed to really echo forward to what happens between Cooper? I should say Cooper, open parentheses, question mark, and Laura, open parentheses, question mark, and Judy, open parentheses, question mark, in part 18. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that really struck me is that how so many, one episode in in particular, or at least, for example, episode seven, it's the episode when I believe Diane goes and visits Cooper in jail for the first time, Mr. C, when he's in Buckhorn. Or, or South Dakota, wherever that prison is. <laughs> One of the Dakotas. But it seemed like that entire episode upon rewatch was foreshadowing things that we are going to see in the finale. So, for example, when Diane meets Mr. C, she says to him, like, look at me. She just really wants him to, to look at her. And that's a, this powerful moment. We understood even in that moment without any contextual information that this is a moment in which a victim of sexual violence is confronting her victimizer um, and wanting a, a confrontation, wanting justice from that moment. It's very powerful. But this whole idea of her wanting to look into his eyes and confront that and then can't stand what she sees and looks away. And she says later to Cole about what she saw, it's not about the passing of the time or how he's changed or the way he looks. Um, Now she starts pointing at her heart. It's something here. There is something that is definitely isn't here. And now listening to those words or seeing that moment when she wants this man to look into her eyes, now kind of like you, you now put that scene and transpose it upon the sex scene at the end in part 18, in which she can't bear to look into his eyes, in which this version of Cooper is still kind of dead and and there's something missing that he's now might be dying right in front of our eyes. I mean, you just kind of like that's that moment seemed to be foreshadowing another moment later on. Um, another example, which I just now when you start watching that episode through the moment of is everything foreshadowing something at the end is like this is also the episode in which. Ike the Spike tries to kill like Dougie and Dougie just expertly disarms him. (laughs) But then the evolution of the arm shows up and like tries to tempt Cooper, you know, squeeze his hand off, squeeze his hand off to basically use excessive force to kill Ike the Spike. 
But no, Dougie, being this expert, at least having kind of Cooper within him, just dispatches him with the right number of moves and the right number of force and doesn't do anything excessive or undisciplined or reckless. That foreshadows episode 18 in which we see Cooper enter Judy's diner and dispatches the cowboys with a cold, excessive use of force that felt very weird and out of character for him, you know? This is also the episode in which Ben and Beverly are starting to hunt for the weird humming that is in the Great Northern. And we will now know in episode 18 where the source of that humming is coming from. It's coming from the basement. But if you look at Ben and Beverly as expressions or doppelgangers of Cooper and Laura, for example, or Cooper and Diane, here are two people trapped in a lodge you know, literally the Great Northern like hotel searching for some ethereal exit or or source of energy or place. I'm not sure Ben ever leaves his office the he entire doesn't. season. I mean, th- this is going to come into a, something that we're going to talk about later, but how every character seems to be commenting on Cooper in some way. So could you look at Ben, for example, as another guy trapped in a lodge with nothing to do but sort of reflect on his sins and obsess over a woman and be tempted to weather cross a line with her, you know? And um, part seven is the episode that ends with the diner shot that spawned all the theories about time travel. Where's Bing? Where's Bing, right? right, right. (laughs) But that's set to the song Sleepwalk. So, I mean, go figure. (laughs) You know, um, and and, the, and finally, this is also the episode where that you where you learned that Mr. C all along wanted to get captured and sent to that jail so that he can rescue Ray and get him out of jail because he's going to lead him to the coordinates. Um, this is just an example of the Orpheus myth that seems to haunt a lot of the end game of Twin Peaks of like, you know, a hero descending into a kind of hell to rescue someone and bring them out. Mm-hmm. And, and that just doesn't go well, you know? <laughs> so there is just an example where in retrospect, a whole episode seems to be filled with scenes and moments that are all about setting up the end of the show, or at least foreshadowing or mirroring moments at the end of the show. Yeah. For me, um, just the real series of moments that stuck out so much came in part 15. Um, This is, of course, the part where uh, we have one of my favorite shots in the whole series where uh, Dougie, soon to be Cooper again, we'll still call him Dougie for now, uh, he's eating some some cake. Um, (laughs) He's like, just, the, the remote control is there. This is the point of the show where like these shots could last for an hour and I'd be fascinated with every second of them. You just know he's going to move towards that remote control. McLaughlin's performance is just so wonderful. He's just kind of gradually coming around to it. Then of course he has his great moment of Sunset Boulevard mediated existential realization. So in that chapter, this is in chapter 15, you have this interesting combination of screams and lights going out. Yep. And it actually happens two and a half times, let's say, when Dougie is sort of sticking his fork into the electrical socket. Stick a fork in him, he's done. There's this truly terrifying, just sh- brief shot where you see Janie E reacting to it. Yes. You don't, you don't see what's happening to Dougie. You see her reaction. The lights in the house like light up bright. She screams. House falls black. 
sure conjures up a big moment that happens right at the end of this whole show, doesn't it? <laughs> in this same chapter, um, you have this the really incredible final moments where uh, the, the character Ruby, played by uh, Charlene Yee, she's in the roadhouse. Uh, these two kind of biker-looking guys walk up to her. She says, she says, I'm waiting for someone, which, you know, talk about on a rewatch, a line where you're just like, God, mysteries within mysteries. Like, who is she waiting for? She then kind of crawls across the floor. This really echoes something you were kind of saying, you know, do we take these characters as reflections of Cooper? She's crawling across the floor in the same uh, chapter where we saw him very memorably kind of crawling across the floor to the conduit. She lets out a scream right during the specific moment in the performance where the lights are kind of really flickering. And as she screams, we cut to black. You know, another sort of moment of like this scream, this cut to black. Now, in the same episode, there is a, by comparison, just as tragic, but certainly less horror-inducing moment where uh, the log lady has passed and we experience her death from afar, watching the lights in her house slowly being turned off. And what's interesting to me is it feels like, in a way, each of these moments is setting us up for the final moment of Carrie slash Laura's scream, her house and indeed the world around it just kind of being shunting bright and then off. But to me, it's actually really helpful because it really helps me focus in on, like, what are three possible interpretations of that final moment? Is one of them the Dougie moment where, you know, it's obviously horrifying, he's being electrocuted, but it's a moment of, like, rediscovery to a certain extent. Dougie will wake up and he will be like his old self again. You know, a lot of people can discuss the possibility of Carrie as being some sort of a Dougie figure for Laura, this person who has gone away from herself. You know, you're left wondering if there is some eternal after part 18, does she return as Laura Palmer? Is she kind of waking up in a hospital bed somewhere with her own version of Bushnell Mullins nearby? It's something you were just talking about. Is this the death of both these characters? You know, are, are they dying and taking Judy with them? You know, certainly a sad ending, but the log ladies passing and just beautiful moments with Catherine Coulson playing her sort of farewell where she's saying that death is a change. You know, it's sort of the, the classic like tarot card reading version of this, like death is a transformation. Are these characters dead, but are they going someplace we can't conceive of? What Good are, point. What, yeah. are, what are the gray havens of, of Twin Peaks? But but there's times where I certainly think, like, I don't know, man. I don't get any happy vibes from the ending of this. <laughs> and that's, that's where I really return to the character of Ruby and her just, I mean, this horrifying just way it's framed of her kind of being on the ground of the roadhouse, no one seeming to really notice her, being surrounded everywhere, the music going crazy, the lights going crazy, her just screaming. That seems to me to be the absence of meaning. If that's, maybe that's what death looks like, or, you know, certainly that's what the ending looks like. So I, I found the the screaming light shut off moments in part 15 were the most kind of both foreshadowing for me and prismatic as far as being ways yeah. to be like, okay, like there are times when I look at this ending and I think a hundred different things and at least these three subgenres, these three directions you, you can maybe interpret are a little kind of, they, they help me frame some meaning around it. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, just thinking about the ways in which the storytelling is slowly setting you up for that ending. Oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you reminded me of in that, what you just said, which was, was great, which was yeah, reminding us of what the log lady says about death. And when we talk about death, we need to be careful and we have to use sort of like the, the ideas and the metaphors that the show gives us. So I assume that 
if and when Laura and Cooper get full awareness and wherever they are at the end and, and realize the reality of their situation and strike one kind of blow that ultimately like turns out the lights in their world that they are then forever lost to us and annihilated. But maybe that's just a, a wrong idea to project on the show. In, in this world, maybe then this is a, a transformation into something else, or ultimately maybe the show is about these kinds of transformations and the very complex kind of realities that go into them, that they are these deaths, these transformations are painful and they're hard and they're not wanted, but they might lead to something better or something worse. Yeah. And, 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 and even like, like, you know, within that kind of interpretation, you know, is Cooper's problem that he doesn't get the log lady's message that death is a change and perhaps you shouldn't meddle with it. And perhaps you shouldn't use lodge magic to time travel back to stop it. From yes, happening. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah. interesting. It leads you in a few different directions, but that kind of leads to something that I think was really something that you kind of uh, enlightened me on, on this rewatch, Jeff, um, this notion of, of Cooper and every character is the sort of echo of him and how we're kind of meant to interpret you know, this is a season of television where on the first go round, I loved it so much. But there were certainly times where I would have said, like, part of what I like about it is it's you know, very all over the place. And like, I don't always know how it connects together. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate these moments we get with characters and the fact that there doesn't seem to be the need to have the big moment where they all get together in a metaphorical, serialized storytelling drawing room and all explain how they're interconnected. Um, but on this go round, there is that sense that these things that are happening to characters Cooper never interacts with kind of relate to him. Was there stuff that really kind of like brought that to the forefront for you on this go through? Yeah, I feel like that was an idea that we might have talked about in our original viewing and I found myself entertaining it seriously again and then getting sidetracked with other thoughts. Odyssey, Odyssey, Odyssey. Right, (laughs) And then thinking like, okay... I guess in rewatch number five, 50 years from now, maybe this will be like a really good project. But if maybe this podcast has some value to people who are considering a rewatch of it, this is an idea to consider, which is like just how many of the storylines either reflect or comment on what is ultimately the central defining narratives of the story, which is that all the different Cooper journeys, which are also themselves like different warped reflections of each other. But just as an example, we've already talked about a couple of them, Red being sort of a Cooper character, or Ben being a Cooper character who's sort of trapped in a place filled with just nothing but his own life to reflect upon, and he's fixated on a, on a woman in trouble, you know? Beverly, who is a Laura Diane figure, but more of a Laura figure because you find out that she's a woman in trouble. She's in a bad marriage with a man who's dying with cancer and they aren't getting along and she needs a job for the health benefits. It's a different kind of, and blissfully so, a very different riff on the woman in trouble that ends up kind of populating a lot of Lynch's fictions. But like, I do find it interesting in there, Beverly is married to Tom who is dying. And if she's an, somehow analogous to Carrie Page, well, who does Carrie Page have in her living room, in her little ramshackle home, 
but a guy with his head blown off. So she's kind of a, a woman in trouble who's stuck with a, a man who is not necessarily dying, but dead. He's dead. <laughs> you know? Um, it's unclear how long he's been there. Too. Yeah, right. He, he might be part of the furniture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Ben's other relationship is with his double, if you will, is his brother, Jerry. And Jerry is a man who goes on a solitary adventure. He, gets, he smokes weed and then kind of like it goes horribly wrong on him and he has a really bad trip like he goes wandering in the woods and it leads to horror shows and ultimately a dead end from which ben now has to go and rescue him and bring him back so if you watch the show it seems that a lot of these journeys and movements and motifs are all mirrored in and cooper's journeys that are these heroic adventures that all often lead to dead ends i'm trying to think of like who gets a good story in this show and the only one that I can really point to, I think, is Norma and Big Ed. Mm-hmm. And there's something kind of meaningful about their example of a happy ending. Here are these two people who've lived a long life and they've patiently suffered, patiently toiled, and patiently worked. And they play a long game with life and they finally find each other at the end by just kind of waiting for it, you know? And and like, don't you think too, it's interesting that with the two of them, and truthfully, I mean, their moment of finally expressing love to each other, it's just one of the most beautiful, I think sincere things that Lynch has ever directed. And like, I think there's a reason for that. In uh, the memoir, uh, there's a great moment where uh, Everett McGill, who plays Big Ed, wonderful man, um, he sort of mentions that they were playing that song on the set, I've Been Loving You Too Long. Lynch was crying, apparently, while they were filming it. I think he says that they filmed that last moment of proposing marriage and her saying, of course I will, and kissing. I think that's the only shot they did. Oh, like, there's, that's there's, so great. there's all these things that all kind of came together so well there. But what's interesting to think about is, for so much of the season... Really, for the big moment of those characters, where are they? They're at work. Like, for a lot of the season, when we saw her, she was kind of over in the corner of the double R. Like, this sort of incredible, I always kind of compared her to, like, the Watcher, you know, just this figure who is, like, a constant presence there in the corner. She's working on the numbers. She sees what's going on with her employees. She sees what's going on with her people. The fact that her kind of final moment is a moment of saying, I don't want to expand, or, you know, you can expand the franchise, but I want to stay here. And what is she tell your boy from the Northwestern uh, <laughs> Newscaster Grant Academy? Grant Goodeve. What does she tell him? She says, like, these people are my family. Like, I've been here my whole life. The double R's been here longer than me. I want to keep it that way. You know, I've raved about this before, but I sort of think that the ultimate Big Ed moment is the moment of him sort of working at his gas farm until apparently forever into the evening. That seems interesting partially because of how it relates to the sort of, are we watching the ripples of a time change yeah. occur? you know when you watch it closely and I should say highly recommend the Blu-ray edition of this season because wow do the colors really pop yes oh my gosh and in that scene especially the sort of hiccup in time that seems to occur in Big Ed's reflection which I could barely see on the first go round because my TV is horrible uh, really just lit up the screen Um, but that scene's also you know so that scene serves a plot reason if you want it to serve that but it's also just a portrait of like here's a guy like hard at work and that's kind of what they've both done and there's something very 
both old-fashioned about that and kind of lovely about that. I think the idea of these are not people who have gone off on flights of fancy the way that Cooper essentially does from the first time we meet him. I find that really interesting and kind of compelling. Like, you know, if Cooper is the Odyssey, then this is the James Joyce's Ulysses, where it's like the mythic quest of going through a typical day in the life. I think that's an interesting thing to have as the shining example of a positive storyline. <laughs> I think that one of the things the show is exploring and testing in a number of different storylines is if you look at Norma and Ed and how the story lets them achieve their sort of self-realization and bliss, it is in stark contrast to some other scenarios. Like for Ed, it's about patiently waiting. And that final moment when he gets what he's always desired, he's sitting at the counter and he's listening to the music and he closes his eyes. It's almost like it's like, well, to to bring Lynch into it, you know, transcendental meditation. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like you just see Norma's hand enter frame and on his shoulder (sighs) and he smiles. It's like a dream come true. But here's a guy who's waited. And what did he do to get this? Well, nothing (laughs) his big character turn is nadine coming to him and basically saying i want a divorce i want to release you you know i was kind of terrible in this marriage you were a good man to me but i know you didn't want to be with me so i'm letting you go there's a lot of like letting go brings in some joy right Mm -hmm. so she lets ed go and then he comes And then his romantic quest is completely foiled by the arrival of Grant Goody. And he (laughs) thinks he's all like, it's all, it's all, it's all done. It's all over. And then what does Norma do? Well, Norma's big turn is she has a kind of heroic quest. She's like expanding herself in all of these franchises of these restaurants, right? This is going to be her immortality. This is going to be her great heroic project. And she's just kind of realized no, that's it's, this is not making me happy. I'm spreading myself thin. I'm becoming fragmented, which is something that Cooper happens at the end, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe I should just be content with what I have and accept my mortality, accept my what, what I can do and do well. And she lets that go. And I find all of these examples of heroism, if you will, or self-fulfillment at odds with Every other storyline, including most of the Cooper storylines in which you have these heroic quests that ultimately end disastrously or are dead-ended or are short-circuited through means beyond their control. And even when they succeed, they don't know exactly know how they did it, you know, like, (laughs) or if they did it at all. There seems to be this constant interrogation of like how we should get what we want, this whole subversion of like heroic odyssey Mm -hmm. and hero's journey narrative throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and on that note, you know, talking about this notion of how is a little bit of Cooper in every character, what's the sort of echo effect there? One thing that we've talked a lot about as we've been rewatching is Mr. C. Yeah. And for me, a key moment that was replaying constantly as I was rewatching it comes late in the series. I'm going to bungle whether it's part 15 or 16. I think it's also part 15 where uh, he finally meets Philip Jeffries. This moment that in a way has been long promised from the very beginning when he is sort of speaking to who he thinks is Philip Jeffries on the phone. Anticlimax, it was not. Or was it hard to say? Or was it? We don't know. (laughs) I I think about 35% of our texts were like, 
I know who the guy is on the phone. And then it's like, no, I actually think I'm it's wrong. So, it's so crazy. That moment of him talking on the phone is like the heaviest mythology dump that ever happens until maybe like part 17. And it's, just, it's thrown at you and you still can't really understand what's happening there. But it's, it's a wonderful moment. And nevertheless, when he finally meets Philip Jeffries, Jeffries says that he remembers seeing him before. We have that kind of great flashback to Firewalk with me and to David Bowie speaking and saying, you know, we're not going to talk about Judy. And there's this moment where Jeffries says, like, you are Cooper. And there's this sudden close-up on Mr. C. And in that moment, that opens up for me this this possibility, and you feel this a lot in the sort of quote-unquote Richard figure in Part 18, of... This isn't a doppelganger, or not a doppelganger in the sense of like an evil Spider-Man clone or whatever. Like, <laughs> this is Cooper yes. somehow. Yeah. And, and what does that mean? And what does that mean for the journey he goes on? And what does that mean for our understanding of Cooper? Um, Mr. C, his plot, how did you kind of experience that this go-around, Jeff? I think that one of the things that really kind of uh, spoke to me in the rewatch is just thinking about the three major Coopers that we see in this show. Dougie. Mr. C, and ultimately the Agent Cooper that surfaces at the end or exists in the Red Room, to what degree that they are essentially all Cooper, all want the same things or all want different things. They are all aspects of Agent Cooper's personality and his identity, and they've been fractured and fragmented and leading these separate lives, you know, wanting different things, wanting the same things, but maybe for different reasons. The one thing that was interesting to track for me upon the rewatch is this idea of like, what does Mr. C want? (laughs) You know, when what he wants throughout this whole show is he wants to find coordinates that will ultimately take him into a space where he can have a confrontation with whatever he thinks this face is that is represented on this ace of spades card which we i think we can safely call judy or is the mother figure that is barfing seeds out into the void and, and planting the world with brooches or like who, who killed the, the young lovers um in the first episode um you're laughing what joke do you want to make I, I just wanted to say was the phrase globs of bob globs bob globs she's vomiting bob globs out into the universe yes that's right <laughs> um and then he he wants this confrontation with her. And it's left to us to actually decide for ourselves, like, why? Like, does he want to be with her? Is this his, like, want to reunite with her? Does he want to destroy her and take her power? Is it a her? These are these questions. Now, what is interesting about this is that if we accept that that Ace of Space cards represents Judy, and represents where he wants, he's looking, he wants to know where this person ultimately is. A couple thoughts about this, that one thing I didn't notice um, the first time around, which is that when he ascends up into the space that we're going to call the White Lodge, like the fireman's house, and he gets put in a cage, and we see on the screen in the background, Laura Palmer's house. And my new interpretation of that moment, like Mr. C doesn't get to see that. And what's interesting about that is I think that this is the show telling us this is where he wants to go. This is ultimately his final destination. This is where the ace of space resides. This is where Judy Jaude is hiding out. It's hiding out in Laura Palmer's old house, probably in the body of her mom, Sarah. 
but he comes so close to getting there. He gets to the final, to the white lodge so he can find the segment of the roadmap to figure out where he needs to go. And then like the fireman just steps in, Bigfoots his entire kind of like odyssey and like just redirects him to a ditch where he's going to be killed, you know? <laughs> um, another example and a, maybe one of the great examples of like great heroic endeavors or odysseys or arcs in the story that and in an anticlimax, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, enjoyable to us because the bad guy has been defeated. So Mr. C's entire odyssey just gets derailed. What I'm kind of getting at, which is a, a connection that I think I had made, but I didn't, I, but I made it more strongly on the, on the rewatch is Mr. C wants what agent Cooper wants, mm-hmm. because we find out in that amazing bit of retcon that Gordon Cole gives us in part 17, that apparently All along, in events not really seen in the show, but could be the result of this retcon time reality that is is taking place right in front of our eyes because of Cooper's time travel heroism, that Cooper, Gordon Cole, and Agent Jeffries were involved in some kind of secret operation that they were keeping hidden from all the other members of the Blue Rose Task Force and the audience in hunting this entity of negative energy known as Judy and that Cooper had a plan and that he didn't really spell out the details to the plan to Gordon or did he? We don't really know. We do know that Gordon is not 100% certain if the plan is still on track. But this is all to say that Cooper, apparently his entire heroic enterprise has been this hunt for Judy. And again, Is that something that has always been the case from the beginning of the show? Is this something that has been retconned into the show through Agent Cooper's time travel? There is this interesting phenomenon that kind of occurs, especially in the back half of the season, where people are constantly remembering things that they think that they have forgotten. Things that you would think that they know, specifically like, the detectives who are investigating this entire mystery. It's like they're remembering things. The moment of like the sudden David Lynch memory of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me and Albert saying, I also suddenly am recalling that moment that you would think they'd remember vividly since it was one of their pals appearing and disappearing in front of their own face. Right. (laughs) So the question that you have to ask is, are these suppressed or repressed memories that they are recovering and if so, why did they forget them? Or as another interpretation is, is that, there, no, you, you didn't forget this because it hasn't happened to you yet. It just did. Like time history is being rebooted as a result of what Agent Cooper is going to do slash has done. And this is the part where it's catching up to you. And so that maybe now things that were not in canon or continuity in your original thing are now being kind of integrated and uploaded into your experience because of stuff that Cooper's doing. Maybe, I don't know, but this is all to say that what Cooper wants, this mission to find Judy and bring her to justice, bring it to justice is what Mr. C wants. It's just a long way of saying it's just interesting that Mr. C is Cooper, you know, and they're all aspects of each other. They, they all want the same thing, but they're fighting each other at the same time. Like just thinking about Cooper and all his incarnations, including Dougie, who 
we didn't really talk about this much, but the original series established clearly that there is this real domestic streak in Cooper. Cooper wants home. Cooper wants true love. Cooper wants a wife and a kids and a place to call home. He's, he's sought that his entire life, and he thought he found it in Twin Peaks. He's a guy who wants to settle down. So Dougie is the part of Cooper that completely gets this, you know? But it's also the Cooper that's at odds with the hero that needs to make the world a better place and deal with injustice in the world. Um, and what Dougie wants is in contrast, the, the guy who wants to settle is, and that's not a bad thing. You and I have had good conversations about whether or not the show presents us as a good thing or a bad thing, but it's not, you know, he wants a, a family and a home and security and all of that. And these are not necessarily bad things, but they might be at odds with the social redeemer that needs to sort of go out and do good work in the world to like repair injustice that actually can be repaired. Well, and it's interesting to think of like, who's the Dale Cooper who after 1989 settled down, uh, as you were saying, had kids, you know, what might he look like today? Um, the one time we really see actual Dougie or classic Dougie or original Dougie or, you know, whatever you want to call him, it's kind of like, oh, like, that's what Comic Lockin might look like if he gained weight the way that a lot of non-actors tend to as they get older. And if he had sort of, you know, ridiculous hair and was maybe having a midlife crisis, clearly not being that great of a husband, actually. You know, is that one future for Dale Cooper? Was that sort of where that domestic journey was going to go to? Mixed with, what if Dale Cooper had remained a hero for 25 years? And in that 25-year period, when suddenly the notion of the anti-hero kind of came to the forefront and the idea of a hero who has to do these Jack Bauer-ish things in order to succeed, does that wind up looking like Mr. C, this person who is on this quest, is on the same quest as original Cooper. The way he's doing it is, you know, leaving a trail of bodies behind him, which sort of makes him every HBO protagonist of a certain era. It's, just, it's interesting to conceive of all of that and then to have quote-unquote classic Cooper he returns to all of this seemingly unchanged and indeed kind of halfway lobotomized and reassembling himself. Yeah. And then, you know, when in the briefest of moments, like I think you could kind of argue, when do we see original Cooper on what we might call Earth? Middle of part 16 into part 17. Maybe that's it. What does he do? Goes back to Twin Peaks. <laughs> Goes back to the Twin Peaks sheriff station. Is fighting Bob again. It's, just, it's interesting. The main feeling I get is... Mr. C as less of a kind of halfway, you know, not fully realized figure who's meant to be the sort of dark version of someone and more kind of like a three-dimensional character in his own right who's almost struggling against and within his own programming. And this idea of, you know, is that the residual Cooperness still within him of trying to chase down Judy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and not even knowing why. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, that, that's another thing we talked about on our rewatch, which is that, you know, what does Mr. C always say? I don't need, I want. Mr. C completely defines himself as like, I don't need to survive. Like I, I'm, Hey, I, I don't need anything. I just want things. I choose to do what I want with my life. I, I don't do anything out of necessity. Everything is a choice. I have total agency. I do what I want and I only do it because I want to do it. And one of the thoughts that I had in the rewatch is, is that really true? And how much that everything he actually wants is actually this vestige 
of the Cooper that wants to find and do something to Judy, you know, and that he's essentially a slave then to a drive that was imprinted on him by Agent Cooper. All of which leads me to theorize about the possibility that in this retcon of Cooper the Superman, who was pursuing a strange scheme to find Judy, is it possible that the creation of Mr. C was a deliberate choice on his part to set loose a sort of undercover agent into the world that is becomes an underworld figure to literally find the big bad of the cosmic underworld of the world of Twin Peaks? In order to defeat the devil, I must go to the underworld first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's just sort of like a big picture kind of solving the mystery kind of like plot theory. But but to be honest with you, like just to consider just the, the relationships as of, 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 of Cooper being expressed in the Dougie who wants security with the Agent Cooper that represents his conscience, uh, contrasting with Mr. C who represents a darkness that needs to be repaired and atoned for. Because Dougie enlightens into Agent Cooper and his heroic mission isn't to go find justice for Laura ultimately, although that ultimately he thinks is his endgame thing. But his big thing is to take responsibility for the evil that he's unleashed in the world in the form of Mr. C. And this complexity of character, like thinking of Dougie and how all of them are like commenting on each other. Dougie is a creation of Mr. C. So is Dougie Mr. C's parody comment on the kinds of things that Agent Cooper wants? You know, uh, you know what I mean? Uh-huh, like definitely. in the same way that Quentin Tarantino idea that in Superman, Clark Kent is Superman's uh, comment on lowly humanity. Like scathing comment on lowly humanity. Yeah, yeah. Is Dougie Mr. C's comment on what Cooper wants or on what normal mortals want. But when you think that all of these people are the same person, like you just realize what a conflicted paradox that Cooper was. Definitely. Jeff, that leads perfectly into, um, we'll call it a unifying theory. Oh Twin boy. Peaks. Um, but specifically theories about Judy. Um, Judy is a figure who looms over the entirety of Twin Peaks The Return. Depending on your interpretations of who or what Judy is, we see her on a few notable occasions. The experiment lurking within the glass cage that explodes outwards. The experiment lingering in that weird ethereal subatomic or superatomic nothingness after the nuclear bomb unloading bob globs onto the world. I think it's fair to say that Judy is inhabiting Sarah Paul Open question, I think, precisely when that happens. Has it always been the case? And what we sort of see in part eight seems to imply that. But then the fact that we see Judy in the glass cage might imply it's a more recent phenomenon. Certainly by the time Sarah Palmer is tearing her face off. That seems like a strong indication something's going on there. She's got some issues. She's got some issues. She's got some demons or quote unquote demons. (laughs) She's she's got one demon in particular. And... To a certain extent, part 18 seems to be about a reckoning with that character, with Zhao Day, as we discover. She or it was sort of known in an earlier sort of Lovecraftian period of godhood. Judy, 
who is Judy, says Mr. C. We have to talk about Judy now. Um, what, uh, for you, Jeff, uh, on this rewatch, was there clarity around that? Was there a sort of interpretation that you came up with that was like the most helpful as far as decoding the Judy aspect of Twin Peaks The Return? You know, my experience of watching the show, and I was tracking that too. It's like, okay, let's track the Judy of it all. Who is Judy? What is Judy? What is her role in this show? And I felt like, my experience of the show in almost every respect and everything that I was tracking was, oh, I think I got a handle on this. I think I got a handle on this. And then at a certain point, about halfway to three quarters through, it's just like, okay, weirdness, information overload. I'm losing a handle on it. I'm losing my grip. That weird thing just blows everything to smithereens. And then the final two hours, it's like, and it all fumbles away from me again, you know? <laughs> so this is all to say that like, it's so funny that my rewatch leaves me exactly where my first watch does, which is it feels as elusive as in a dream. You know, you're in a dream. You think it's all making sense. You think it's all coherent. And then at the end, a rush of weird stuff happens. And then you wake up and then so much of it is like leaving your mind and then you forget that it's only defined by the end. And then I don't know. So I think that I will come up with new theories for who Judy is and what Judy is. Every time I watch it, my mind changes all the time. Yeah. So like, who is Judy? Like some things that are informing my thoughts now on who and what Judy is and specifically what happened at the end, the things that are most informing my theory making right now are things like, I do think that, Cooper and Laura have effectively died. And I think that, well, no, I don't know. No, no, no. So here's what I, here, here's some things that, this, just, you know, this is exactly my reaction too, just as a minor preview. Okay, okay. Yeah. But, but just what I think is like, when I'm thinking about what is that place at the end, and I'm thinking things like how there's a telephone pole, an electrical pole outside of Carrie Page's house that is marked with the numeral six. And with those numbers that we know seems to be a kind of like a pole that marks a conduit of black like lodge energy and this theory that is not mine, but I think other people have observed online is, is that it's just interesting that this pole is positioned outside of Carrie Page's house. Carrie Page, this woman in trouble, this new incarnation of Laura, who is despairing, whose life is filled with chaos, whose life is filled with pain and sorrow, Garmin Bosia, and that this is the stuff these demons love to feed on. And we know that they communicate or at least maybe experience energy through electricity. So this idea that here in this realm, Judy residing now in Sarah Palmer's house and who has now taken over Sarah Palmer and rendered her a ghost in her own house. Now that Judy has now incarnated in the form of Alice is like using Laura hiding her in this new life of Carrie page as like a battery as a source of food that she lives on. So she's created this whole little pocket universe in which she's living this nice little life, like this Dougie life, you know, mm -hmm. in the suburbs with, this phantom husband that she talks to who may or may not be real and what is powering her life, but the pain and suffering of this poor woman who's living in near poverty and in a bad part of town somewhere far away, you get the sense that some kind of social comment about 
capitalism and materialism in America is steeped in this idea. This woman is living in a white house in the suburbs, living a very comfortable life. Not this woman, but a person. Let's just call Judy like a person. And that she is living off of the energy of the suffering of some lowly waitress living this dark life, you know, far away. Those are the things that are like, that are informing any kind of read on Judy. But the the word that I put out on Twitter today is this whole idea of, it's a cuckoo theory, you know? The cuckoo is this bird who is a brood parasite. And what do brood parasites do? Well, they plant their eggs in the nest of another bird, right? And that egg is going to hatch and the cuckoo is going to emerge and it's going to knock all the other eggs out of the nest and take over the next nest and take it over from the mother that lives there. It strikes me that Judy is a brood parasite. And then if you use sort of the imagery that we were given in part eight of Judy replicating herself by spitting eggs out into the atomic desert, you know, blasted desert of New Mexico, and this roach, this thing kind of like breaks out of the, the shell and then like jumps into the body through the mouth of young Sarah Palmer and has been gestating in her for who knows how long and in the process become this magnet for all sorts of evil, including her own kind of like other cuckoo children like Bob, but as part of this long plan, this long game plan for it to ultimately take over Sarah, then take over her home and feast on her own children, i.e. Laura, That's my sort of new theory of what happened there at the end. So yeah, like where are we at the end? Are are, are we in a pocket universe where only this can happen? Are we in Twin Peaks proper as we've always known it? Are we in a new rebooted timeline version? The when and where actually isn't that important to me, or at least I just don't have a theory on, but that's sort of my take on Judy. Yeah, I mean, I I found one thing I was trying really hard to do on this watch was having absorbed so much about Twin Peaks in the interim, and you know, I, I want to give a shout out to anybody who wants incredible Peaks coverage should definitely go check out the Blue Rose magazine, yeah. which um, they've been putting out some incredible issues uh, over the past year, which like, as far as just being an incredible layouts and helping me to understand the minutiae while kind of keeping sight of the bigger picture that's been helpful at the same time a lot of times in this rewatch I was trying to sort of just experience it as vividly as possible and yeah. like because I do think that one thing Lynch and Frost and their collaborators are conjuring up is this mood piece which like it's easy to lose track of that when you try to graph what happens and you kind of forget how like, like how it feels when it happens um, and that's why I really appreciated going back through it and I, re- I realized that just the ending is so intensely off-putting in a way. And as much as there is this feeling of a climax, truly, of you know the lights going off in the world, it just feels so wrong. And what Cooper is doing seems deeply wrong. And the fact that he's brought whatever version of Laura Palmer you want to call this, he's brought her back here to seemingly do something that will maybe free her mom. But if her mom is to a certain extent 
extent also kind of Judy? Has he brought her back? Has, has, has Dale Cooper, is he destroying two or three women at this moment? Like, it's just, it's all these things that come together. Judy is so clearly a monstrous figure, and indeed, like, her appearances in the show seem to only tie into moments of casual or omniscient evil. And yet, I'm left with a feeling of, like, is the attempt to take down Judy, is it yet another example of trying to solve something that you shouldn't solve, that is a part of the past, that is a part of the universe? You know, is it like trying to rescue a girl who died, and when you do that, it just causes more issues, and, you know, should we have followed the log lady's advice and let death be the change it was supposed to be? I find that I think a lot about the fact that when we first see Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks The Return. There's that flashback of her saying, I'll see you again in 25 years. Then we see the quote-unquote older version of her in The Red Room. That's the one time that she says, I am Laura Palmer. And the idea that that version of her is the true version and then whatever happens over the course of this season, what happens because of Dale and because of Dark Dale and all of that, whatever takes her away from that is bad. I, I don't know. It's I'm left feeling like I'm not sure Judy is a good entity, maybe more a morally ambiguous entity, and certainly the urge to destroy her. I'm left questioning if that's the right decision, you know? Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm no closer to knowing who or what she or it is, but I feel strongly that Cooper's angle of approach on her might be wrong. <laughs> well, here's another way to, in- you inspired me on the spot to theorize a new idea about Judy when we talk about Judy being this sort of entity of evil, what are we talking about? Is this show really about finding and killing the devil? Right. You know? Right. Is she the Thanos or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Like, and, and is that even the right way for us to conceptualize evil in this show or for really anyone to conceptualize evil? I guess there's another way to interpret Judy is that she's a precipitant evil of all sorts of things that are happening on the show. Oh, I, it was sounded really good in my head a minute ago, Darren. It sounded really say good. It, say no, it, no, no, say well, it. no, I'm struggling with it. I guess what I'm getting at is, is that Judy is an externalized evil. Well, she's not evil. Evil may be the wrong word. Cause I think that what's described is negative energy. Yeah. yeah. So she is, an negative energy that has literally been brought externalized out of a group of people and three people, I would say in particular, and taken on a life of its own, literally in the form of Alice Tremont. Mm -hmm. She is agent Cooper's misguided heroism, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of negative energy. She is Sarah Palmer and Laura Palmer's suffering and their continued unresolved pain and self-destructive strategies for dealing with that pain, Mm -hmm. i.e. Sarah's alcoholism and her drug use, and then just Laura's own kind of victimization and running away from it, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that these sort of like doomed exercises in heroism, these sort of like toxic forms of like nostalgia and holding on the past, these sort of doom strategies for dealing with pain and suffering by running away and escaping all, all this pain and suffering and damage have all this Garmin Bosia mm-hmm. of all of these people has now taken on as externalized and taken on a life of its form in the form of Judy. And that the only way for them to move on is to confront it and scream at it 
and then destroy it. But the irony is going to be that it's going to destroy them too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sarah is spiraling towards self-destruction. She's dying. Laura is dead. She was killed, you know, like, and Cooper, I think is just lost his way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and who knows, maybe the act of killing Mr. C is killing Cooper. So mm-hmm. he's technically dead too. So these people have to die. Yes. You know? Yeah. So yeah. Judy Jowie is in some sort of like a mythical incarnation of evil, at least not at the end. I don't know what this abstraction is that is puking Bob globs onto the world. Like that just sort of like, that's interesting. But this Alice Tremont entity of negative energy that could be called Judy is a construct of this unholy trinity of people, mm-hmm. Sarah, Laura, and Cooper. If that makes sense. It's really interesting. Um, Jeff, uh, we do have to start wrapping up. Before we do, we've just uncovered some deep, serious, structural mysteries attached to this show. Mr. C, Judy. The more we talked about this, the more I was realizing that some of the things I was thinking might be wrong. I feel like that's, that's a core aspect of the show. But... Just like in general, were there other like little moments along the way that stuck out to you as just mysteries that are unresolved that you're fascinated by? One that I want to just shout out. Um, in a way, it's maybe the one I've thought about the most just because like it is so vividly just a question without an answer. When Stephen and Gersten are <laughs> by the tree, and by the way, I mean that scene we talked about the first time is so incredible. He says, I did do it. Gersten says, no, she did it. And every Everything in like the setting of it, you feel like they've done something wrong. Yeah. You feel like Steven's done something wrong. The end of that scene is that deeply disquieting shot of yeah. Steven's home where he lives with the uh, Amanda Seyfried uh, character. Is she dead? Was she killed? The final dossier seems to imply no, but as much as I do appreciate that book, I find that like it seems very clear to me that there are cross-purposes being constructed at times between that interpretation of events and what we see here. I just like that is a big question mark that will always haunt me. Like, yeah. is, is Amanda Seyfried dead? If she is, what does that mean for like her family as we've kind of come to know them at this point? Yeah, you know, there's just there's so much going on in that scene, and you know, just the performances of it are incredible. But I find that is just a big flag with a giant question mark on it that I'll, will always, always torment me. <laughs> I have several unanswered mysteries, but can I begin with one that I think we solved upon rewatch? Okay, yeah. One of the things I fixated on and was a linchpin, so to speak, of um, the theory, the, the last theory that I wrote in my final recap of the finale, which was all hinged on what do we do with the scene in the very first episode near the beginning? So after sort of the opening credits scene, we get this scene with Cooper meeting with the fireman. The fireman, you know, says, it is in our house now. And Cooper's like, it is. <laughs> and then he, she, he says, remember, and he gives Cooper a series of clues. And one of the things that we fixated on in our last final podcast was, when does this moment fall on the timeline of stuff? And I think that we solved it. We believe now that this moment is occurring after Dougie puts his fork in the light socket. And then when he wakes up, mm-hmm. uh, when Cooper wakes up, that when he, when he electrocutes himself, 
he goes and has the meeting with the firemen. He gets his instructions, and then he wakes up with them, and then he's executing them. From there on, he is acting upon it. Yeah, because yeah. I remember at some point, I think we discussed, or perhaps I read somewhere else, the notion of does that occur between part 17 and part 18? I find that that's a less compelling interpretation than, yeah, like this is the moment of Cooper's, both his return to himself and his, his mission statement being laid out for the rest of his journey through the show. And yeah. the reason why we, we came to this conclusion is because of a telltale detail that we didn't notice the first time around. Talk about things we didn't notice around, which is that Cooper's FBI pin. Cooper is wearing his FBI pin in those first couple episodes when he's in the Red Room, when he's in the Black Lodge, when he falls out of the Black Lodge, when he goes into the purple space and has the encounter with NATO. And then when he goes through the outlet He's still wearing his pen, but but when he goes through the outlet and he materializes in Vegas as Dougie, he's missing two things. He's missing his shoes, but he's also now missing his pin. And that pin has gone is gone missing. And the Cooper in the black suit as Dougie that is wandering around, he, he has no FBI pin. The Cooper that rendezvous with the fireman in the fireman's house is not wearing an FBI pin. So our conclusion was, this is actually Dougie. You know, this is, this is Cooper in Dougie clothes having an audience with the firemen. So this must be occurring after the electrocution and before the awakening. Solved. Solved. <laughs> All right. Maybe. So other mysteries that I feel are unsolved for me, but I have a theory on, is who is American Girl? So, like, American Girl is one of two young women, or two women, that occupy that weird bell-shaped structure that is floating in purple space. Purple room, yeah. And we know that we now know that one of them is NATO, who is Diane in disguise. So if we accept that this is some kind of, like, holding tank or prison even that the real Diane was put in... And when she falls out and then spirals down through the stars and then lands ultimately in Twin Peaks, if we are to think that NATO was a sort of prison for Diane, is American Girl a prison for someone? And... My theory is that it's the real Janie E. Mm, that's interesting. This is the idea that Janie E, as we see her, is the Tulpa version of someone else. That's, that's right. very interesting. Yeah. That would sort of almost, expl- I think that theory is maybe kind of like bolstered by Diane's claim that Janie E is her stepsister. I think half sister, half sister. And even the phrase half sister in the context of this show just has so many interesting interpretations. But this is Tolpa Diane saying that Janie E in Vegas is her half sister. So is that another clue that Janie E in Vegas is a Tolpa? Could it be that Diane was split in half? And so that half of her is in, NATO and half of uh, maybe Janie E is part Diane too. That's what really I'm, interesting. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so unanswered question is American girl, a Tulpa prison for another character in the show. The other thing is how the heck did, Dougie's wedding ring oh. lined up in Major Briggs' stomach. The wedding ring. I mean, the, 
talk about the stuff with Briggs is the stuff where I always think I have it lined up in my head and then it just escapes me in the end. And certainly far and away, the wedding ring is the most prime example of that. I do really like your interpretation of the wedding ring being a part of the honey trap of eternal mystery, that Mr. C left it there for a reason. I think you're meant to strongly assume that Mr. C and his hooligans were the people who met Matthew Lillard and Major Briggs in the zone and that he sort of set all of this up. That's interesting. You know, it doesn't get me any closer to explaining like the Briggs of this season. There's one random reference to the fact that they've found like his fingerprints six 16 times over the last 25 years, which makes you feel like, what, what, what was he doing those 16 times? Like, what? I mean, how is this been like? But I have to say, as much as all of that stuff is just tormentingly mysterious, and I really do tie all that, you know, Briggs' plan, Mr. C's plan, a lot of that gets tied up with me in this hazy idea of, I think it's all to do with the firemen and the fact that they all kind of end up there. I can see the steps, but not necessarily where those steps are going. But I have to say, the Roadhouse Randos. Yeah. The Roadhouse Randos, who it's so interesting how they start appearing because it's really only in part nine after the sort of part eight reboot recreation of all history. Then in part nine, you get that great moment where Sky Ferreira and her friend are speaking in deep code about animals that don't seem to be animals and burgers that don't seem to be burgers. And she has her rash. All of those scenes I find so fascinating and just so truly difficult to pin down. I do find find that those are scenes that make the most sense to me when I try to do this sort of interpretive like okay these are in this episode what's going on in this episode that seems to relate to this stuff and you know this this sort of notion of like is what's happening in the roadhouse this very clear echo of everything else and like don't listen to the names they're saying listen to what they're describing and where else have we seen that and of course on that tip the moment when the two young women are talking I think it's part 14 and the woman is is talking all about her mom and her mom's boyfriend and this strangeness with him and her friend says what's your mom's name again the audio buildup to her response is so horrifying and just is the most explicit underlining that ever happens in this season <laughs> as far as being like pay close attention to dun, this dun, dun. and then she says it's Tina and it just, it's just <laughs> It's, it's the most like I find that is a scene where I'm like there's so much going on here I always think I understand it I always think I know how it relates to Audrey but, you know are you meant to think the mom is Audrey and it's not but it is but I just every time I watch that scene it just comes so close I grasp it and then it just becomes a cloud and it completely gets away from me <laughs> yeah that that that's another storyline that upon rewatch I was able just to sort of appreciate it ultimately just on the level of lynchy weirdness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you realize now on rewatch, this is not going to go anywhere. <laughs> like all these intrigues, all this like soap opera, essentially that they are describing through their conversations that is going on. I mean, you think it's going to be relevant to the mysteries of the season and it's not. It's another sort of dead end. And literally like it could all be a dream. It's interesting how we're not talking about Audrey. Like, what's one unresolved question of the season? Like, well, how do you explain Audrey? But it's interesting that how, I don't know, maybe you feel the same way. On rewatch, I'm not feeling like, yeah, like I want the answers to what happened to Audrey. Like, it almost makes unspoken sense to me. I mean, it's like she's this damaged woman who is 
probably living in an institution somewhere and all of this is taking place in her head, including maybe everything that ever happened in the roadhouse with a couple exceptions. And like, do you find sometimes with her, the diagonal approach is best. Her first appearance when that incredible scene ends with her just screaming, like, you're not going to tell me what she said, which is, you know, funny, which is, which is funny in context. Then you get to the end of part 18. What is the sequence playing in slow motion over the end credits? It's Laura Palmer saying something to Dale. And all you can scream at, at the show is you're not going to tell me what she said. Like, it's just, (laughs) and you know, on the Audrey note, by the way, in preparation for this, a line that really jumped out to me on rewatch, just because of, frankly, who says it, uh, which is two very different people, Audrey and the evolution of the arm both make reference to the little girl who lives down the lane. Now, on one hand, you're kind of like, what two figures could be more disparate in the world of this show than the tree in the red room and Audrey in her house, question mark, in her mind in the institution, question mark? Um, But they both mention it. Is that the story of the little girl who lives down the lane could just be a cool phrase that they're using but there is of course the movie starring Jodie Foster the little girl who lives down the lane we talked about it a little bit last year but I never watched it finally got around to it highly recommend it to everyone who wants to check it out Uh, it's on voodoo I think which is an actual thing it turns out but uh, it's a great movie that I am going to largely spoil in a very short amount of time here so check it out if you want to have your mind like low-key blown can I just like uh, if you don't mind Jeff um, little girl who lives down the lane stars Jodie Foster as a teenager. She's living in a house with her father. We don't see her father. She has a couple of visitors early on in the movie. One of them is Martin Sheen, a man who lives nearby. He's out trick-or-treating with his kids. Very immediately becomes clear that he is interested in her in a way that a man his age should not be interested in a girl her age. He is like very much like pursuing her in a deeply leering, grossly seductive fashion. He also has a mom who owns the house that she is now living in with her father. The mom comes by a few times, is always asking to see her father. Jodie Foster always says, oh, like, my dad's in his study. He can't be bothered. She's literally sort of, like, going to a corner and sort of, like, speaking as if her father is there. Shades of Alice Tremont talking to the person in her house at the end. We quickly learn a lot of things are going on in this house. Uh, The father is dead. They moved there. He had some sort of terminal illness. And at some point, he basically just left her one day, said, you know, you'll have to be on your own now, and swam off into the ocean. He's dead. But before he left, he said, if your crazy mom ever shows up, give her some tea and put this substance in the tea before you do. She didn't know what it was. Her crazy mom showed up. She put the substance in the tea and gave it to her. Uh, It was poison. Her mom's corpse is in the basement from the beginning of this movie. So, So you realize all of a sudden, oh, like both her parents were dead in this house of death when the movie started and she was just sort of acting as if, you know, nothing nothing was going wrong. Martin Sheen's mom discovers the body in the basement and is so horrified she's coming up the steps. The door suddenly drops on her. She dies too. So now you're just like, well, this house is, it's a parade of death just following this blonde 13-year-old around everywhere she goes. A lot more happens from there. There is a kind of final reckoning with the Martin Sheen character. There is a kind of interesting romantic triangle between a local kid who's very nice. He's kind of just helping Jodie Foster bury these bodies. This is a 
big part of the movie. Meanwhile, the kind of ultimate reckoning with the Martin Sheen character, she has no help. The local police, there's one sort of policeman who's very nice and is completely ineffective at realizing that there is a death house in his town. He can't help her at all. Her boyfriend can't help her at all. It all kind of comes down to her versus this very leering, openly pedophiliac, gross, disgusting Martin Sheen character. This is all to say, a lot going on in this movie if you're looking at it through a Twin Peaks prism and yeah, through, yeah. you know, Twin Peaks as the story of a blonde teenager beset upon by men who are way too old for her, weathering like death and this notion of this house full of death where the father is dead, the mother is there in body, but is she dead already? Merely going to this house seems to invite death. What's crazy is, um, so her boyfriend, who's just this nice local kid, the last time we see him, he's gotten painfully ill with pneumonia. Watching you just kind of like, I mean, is, is the house killing? It's just, he's last seen sort of like on his deathbed. It seems like he might get better, but it's just, so ultimately you're left with this weird feeling of, well, Jodie Foster's the hero of this movie. And indeed, like, there's a real awesome kind of toughness to her. This is right around the time that she was making Taxi Driver. Her ultimate action that she has to take is very much her taking action to protect herself. But the tone of it is very, like, people all around her keep winding up dead. And, and some people she seems to kill. And it's just, it's fascinating to view it. What does that mean for the Audrey evolution of the R mention of this movie? No real clue except to say that the notion of the death house and this place that is tied in so strongly with this young innocent who over the course of this story will become much less innocent, partially because of what other people are doing to her, partially through her own kind of methodology. It's, it's interesting. It sits very intriguingly. And, okay, and, okay, wait. I have a theory now based on everything you've just said. All right, okay. all right. Well, it's interesting. You've made a link between the evolution of the arm, this you know, tree brain dude, with... Audrey, right? And they both are linked through this line. Well, they're really, the evolution of the arm is seen twice. And in both times, they have cryptic encounters with Agent Cooper. But both of, in both times, the subject is Audrey related because the first time that Cooper meets the evolution of the arm in, in the Red Room was in the second episode. And the evolution of the arm says, Do you remember your doppelganger? And what's the connection to Audrey? Well, Mr. C raped her and like got her pregnant. And Richard is the product of that crime. And the whole idea is, is that now they are sending Cooper out essentially to be part of a scheme to reclaim Mr. C, this doppelganger, mm -hmm. right? This Bob possessed doppelganger. And then the other thing that happens at the end is that when Cooper has another audience with the evolution of the arm, you almost get the sense that the evolution of the arm is going kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Is it the story of the little girl who lives down the lane? And then, which is obviously something that Audrey says. Now here's the other link between the evolution of the arm, which is a tree <laughs> and Audrey who might be in a mental institution. We think according to that book, I believe the mental institution is built in, where is it located? Ghostwood. The Ghostwood <laughs> Forest, where trees are. <laughs> I'm just saying. Ghost trees at that. Ghost trees, right? <laughs> I'm just wondering, are we supposed to wonder a literal link between Audrey in her mental institution in this haunted wood which is the access point into the Black Lodge and this tree. Our tree and Audrey psychically linked. 
Is Audrey even the evolution of the arm? Is Audrey tasking Cooper with the job of going out in the world and killing her rapist? Whoa. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but I like that. <laughs> um, Jeff, uh, I think that about wraps it up for us on this rewatch until we start watching it again. Yes. Uh, any other uh, final thoughts to share? Any other things you wanted to get through uh, while we're here in, in front it's of the podcast? It's always a, a pleasure to, uh, you know, as long as Entertainment Weekly will allow this and you're not bored, we should like maybe do this once a year. Once a year. There we go. Is that okay? I love that idea. Because I, I, I think that one of the beautiful things about this show is that it is a text that we can come back to and have new thoughts on all the time. And moreover, I think it's a show worth revisiting because I just think that this is a pretty special show flaws and all a product of an artistic expression that I want to see more of, you know, the kinds of storytelling that Frost and Lynch are doing here. I, I want to see inspire a, a lot of shows out there and it represents a kind of creative audacity that we need more of. So, and I think it's a show that will age well and that will be resonant with the times uh, such as they are. Jeff, I will now look forward to our annual Twin Peaks podcast. Uh, hopefully everyone else out there will uh, stick with us through the next few decades as, as, as we continue to <laughs> dig into this show. Um, Jeff, it's always a pleasure talking to you. you Thanks too. for taking time uh, out of your day. Uh, where can people find you? Um, what's new in uh, Jensen land? At this uh, point? I'm still haunting Twitter, usually in the form of jokes. Uh, at Twitter, a.k.a. Ghost One. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> At EW Doc Jensen. I'm waiting for Entertainment Weekly to say, hey, um, can you eliminate the EW brand name from your handle? No and, way. Uh, no like, way. Keep it forever. All right. And then um, we're still working on Watchmen. As we are recording this, it's the middle of August. And so hopefully you'll be hearing some... Uh, some cool news about the project in the next month or so. That's the series about the clockmakers. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Good. Um, Glad to hear that yeah. you guys are uh, progressing forward on that. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, we're, it's a, it's a hard hitting prestige HBO drama about the business of it's like succession only about a company that makes timepieces. <laughs> Yeah, we'll stick around for uh, more news on that. Uh, find me on Twitter at Darren Franich and also uh, writing various TV reviews and uh, TV thoughts at EW.com and in the EW magazine. Everybody tweet at us. Let us know what you think. If you've had new thoughts on Twin Peaks, let us know. And uh, yeah, uh, that was the Twin Peaks rewatch. We did it. Woohoo! Well, uh, in lieu of screaming and turning off the lights, we'll just turn off the lights for right now. Uh, Jeff, always a pleasure. You too.